And so I love the, the work that a number of scholars, you know, in, in our field have put out on amplification. How do we make language more rich? How do we make it more abundant without watering down? And I think some um, professional learning that really helps um, general education teachers see that it's um, supporting English learners is, is more than, um, you know, using visuals and, and teaching vocabulary. Like I think that getting beyond some of those kind of misconceptions about what English learner instruction is, I think um, is really promising. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Before we introduce this episode's guests, I want to remind everyone that we kick off our third annual impact event on December 5th, and it goes on the 5th, the 6th, and 8th with two to three sessions every day. This is a free virtual event, kind of a series of different sessions that is open to anyone who wants to learn more about supporting multilingual learners, and it features some of the most well-respected experts in the field. I'll name three right now off the top of my head, Dr. Carol Selva, uh, Emily Francis, as well as Andrea Honigsfeld. There are many, many, many more. Impact began in 2020 in an effort to provide educators with high-quality learning opportunities in the midst of the pandemic. It has grown every year since, and we are excited to bring it back in 2022. To learn more about the event and to register for all sessions or just the ones you want, please visit our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. You'll see a tile there that says impact that you can click on to register. And if you happen to be listening to this uh, episode after our last impact session ends on December 8th, no worries. All sessions are recorded and will be available on our community. Okay, now on to this week's episode. What impacts have we seen on recent policy changes to reclassification or exiting of English learners with disabilities? How can schools prioritize collaboration and improve their current processes for determining reclassification for English learners who also have disabilities or are in the SPED program? What strategies can we use to ensure that these students are integrated into general education classrooms without compromising on learning in a supportive, language-rich environment? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Sarah Kangas, who returns to Highest Aspirations after joining us all the way back in 2018 to discuss how schools are accommodating English learners with disabilities and the impact that EL and disability status have had on reclassification or exiting. We sat down to catch up with Dr. Kangas and learn about the latest challenges facing students and how schools can employ a collaborative approach in addressing inequities. Dr. Sarah Kangas is an associate professor in the College of Education at Lehigh University. She is an applied linguist whose research focuses on the school-age population of multilingual learners with disabilities. Using ethnography and interpretive policy analysis, Dr. Kangas investigates opportunity to learn for multilingual learners with disabilities, with particular attention to the ways in which education policies, school structures, and ideologies affect their everyday learning experiences. Grounded in interpretivist and critical frameworks, her research seeks to promote social justice through advocating and expanding the learning opportunities and educational rights of multilingual learners with disabilities. Dr. Sarah Kangas, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, your second visit. It's good to be back um, after all this time. Yeah, it's good to see you. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's always nice to have repeat guests. It means that they had uh, at least somewhat of a positive experience. So I'm glad to have you yes. back and chat with you again. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, I was looking. We had we chatted last time in 2018. Um, mm-hmm. Very different world in many many ways. I know, professionally, academically, personally, yeah. I'm sure. Um, and uh, I'm happy to have the opportunity to kind of catch up with you again to discuss such an important topic. In our last conversation, we focused on why it is so important that EL and SPED departments uh, break down silos and collaborate to identify, mm-hmm. support, and access students effectively. That was kind of the crux of our conversation. Really well received. It's a topic that a lot of folks are interested in. It's a really important one. And I want to use that as a starting point, although we're going to kind of get a little bit more nuanced today. Mm-hmm. Um, given the pandemic and other sort of quote unquote natural changes in education that happen over time, how has this collaboration evolved and improved or has it stalled in your view? Um, I think in in the schools that I have been working with, I, I have seen that collaborations have stalled or been put on pause maybe with COVID and um, in particular, the lingering staffing issues that some schools are encountering. A lot of the teachers that I work with um, they have lost their kind of common planning periods or their prep periods where they would typically consult with colleagues, even within their own departments mm-hmm. um, and work together. And so they've had to kind of sacrifice those periods to help the school keep functioning and to support the kids. And so um, that has, I think, taken a toll on some of our teachers and has really put those kinds of collaborations on pause. I think this year I'm seeing in the teachers I work with, you know, more hope, um, you know, positions have been filled. There's some vacancies, but positions are, are, have been filled over the summer. They're not scrambling as much with how, you know, people being out because of COVID or people, um, you know, taking leaves to take care of family members and so on. So I've seen some kind of renewal and, in, in um, kind of resetting, like how do we mm-hmm. reset collaboration? How do we, how do we start over, so to speak, um, now that things are a little bit more like they were before the pandemic? Yeah, I like what you said about pause rather than kind of stall and, yeah. and through no really choice of anybody's, right? I mean, the pandemic obviously threw us all for a loop and we had to reprioritize things. And I think that one of the things <clears throat> that certainly I was looking for as somebody who's, you know, kind of a lifetime in education or a prof- you know, professional career in education was that spark to really make the changes that I've kind of wanted to see in education mm-hmm. innovation wise in a long time. And what I'm starting to realize, and it, you know, what you just said resonates with me is that that, that takes a while. So like mm-hmm. you have to kind of, I guess, process and reflect on everything before you can make some of those changes um, largely because you just don't have the systems in place to do it because you've been focusing mm-hmm. on so many other different things. Um, yes, I agree. I, I really advocate for just incremental um, incremental collaborations or inc- incremental change around kind of breaking down silos. So what is the one thing this year that the EL or multilingual learner department can do with special ed to improve collaboration? So what's that one small thing and, and trying to focus on it because it does take a long time. These um, professional silos have been long existing. So it's going to take a while to uh, work more in, in an integrated way for English learners with disabilities. Yeah. And I think that's important to recognize because we all, or at least I'll speak for myself, I read these books, you know, about disruption and how, um, you know, the, these the, these things happen and everything changes and there's this innovation that happens right away. But really it is, it's incremental. It takes time and you have to see mm-hmm. some successes first. Um, yes. Okay. So I, I want to spend some time um, talking about 
how disabilities impact EL reclassification rates. That's something we kind of got to a little bit last time. You gave us a good mm -hmm. definition of what reclassification was. Most of the folks that listen to this know what it is, basically exiting those students out of the program, um, out of EL programs. We know the data shows that long-term English learners um, can struggle with, with outcomes um, later. So it's a really, really important kind of, or at least yeah. perceived important indicator of kind of success. You have some relatively recent research that indicates mm -hmm. this is a more complicated issue than it seems kind of on paper, and there may not be a clear solution. Um, I want to read a, a, a quote from the abstract of one of your papers. I think it's really, really interesting. Um, it says, the findings indicate that although the policy increased reclassification rates for ELs with disabilities, both the policy itself and its implementation introduced new inequities. As a consequence, educators held two competing views of the policy and its implementation, with some lauding its promotion of equity while others arguing that it functioned as a mechanism for discrimination. So talk about mm -hmm. what the policy is first, and then what yeah. implications does it have for reclassification policies and educators serving these students? So Pennsylvania has a very unique exit or reclassification uh, policy. Uh, specific to English learners with disabilities. It was instituted prior to COVID and it has, it outlines separate exit criteria, not just a separate score on a, on assessment, but separate criteria altogether. Um, and those criteria, you know, have been, are, have been controversial in the sense that some feel that it was a lowering of the bar way too mm -hmm. far. Like it just made Basically, anyone with a disability can just get exited. Um, so that that's kind of the, the controversy around the policy. We know that so many English learners with disabilities become long-term English learners. In some states, you know, it's one in every two kids that you see in middle school and high school have a disability and are really overrepresented among long-term adults. That doesn't sound good to me. I mean, anytime mm -hmm. we have a disproportionate representation of a group, we know something is not working, right? So um, this policy, in many respects, sought to kind of fix that. Um, let's change the reclassification criteria, have distinct criteria for this group um, that really enables them to exit and have, you know, we know that once students exit, quite unfortunately, they have greater access to different classes, mm -hmm. to different, um, especially in secondary grades, higher academic tracks. So that becomes an equity issue. And that's kind of what the, the study in part focused on is we had ESL teachers that were very excited about the policy. They felt like finally these um, students get to be exited. They get to have expanded opportunities, um, especially in middle school and high school. And then their special education counterparts really felt like the policy policy prematurely exited the children. It it basically pushed pushed them out. Um, so there was that kind of competing view of the policy that the the special ed teachers thought, okay, I think these kids have been exited too soon, mm -hmm. and they actually need that additional language support, and now they're not going to get it. So that was kind of the the what the study captured is that the how many kids were exited what the experience was like and how the teachers responded to this policy that was really implemented very quickly um, over the summer which always makes work really challenging for teachers is negotiating this new policy like in june and july when they're off contract um so that that's kind of the the context of the of the study yeah that thorny right i mean it's yes. like because <laughs> 
and we're when I say we, I mean uh, the folks at Elevation, all of us, we're definitely I don't know if guilty is the right word because we have you know great intentions, but we use this reclassification as kind of a gold standard, right, for mm-hmm. preventing high numbers of LTELs, which again. The data is like frightful. I mean, the the outcomes for long term English learners, um, if you're just looking at the data, is not is not good. Um, yeah. And so, given all of this, and what you said really resonates with me about you know the EL teachers being really kind of happy that the students had all of these new opportunities. That's an equity issue in and of itself. Those opportunities right. don't exist in in other places. So, I mean, you got to this a little bit, but I'd love to break it down. Like, what does this mean for? First of all, the the I guess the the basis of our last conversation, which is the collaboration between the LSPED departments, but also content teachers, right, and mm-hmm. other stakeholders in school districts um, who are kind of making the decisions and overseeing all of this reclassification. Mm-hmm. I know it's a huge question, so feel free it to is, like it is a big one. <laughs> uh, but you know, Pennsylvania is unique, and um, there's lingering controversy around this policy, and I've heard um, indications that. Um, from that the federal, uh, de- uh, the U.S. Department of Ed does not want distinct exit criteria for the students. Um, so I don't know, that's kind of in flux. So I think there's going to be a lot of growing pains around this topic of what what states are allowed to do and and what they're not in terms of exit criteria. But in terms of what teachers can control, we can't control the policies. But that's, I think that's that, probably what this audience wants to hear. So I'm curious to hear yeah. Yeah, there's no there's no changing. And I think there can be some advocacy to state leaders on this topic. But um, what I what I think kind of generalizes to, to teachers, whether they have distinct um, criteria that they're working with or not, is that it really does need to be um, exiting English learners with disability needs to be um, a multi-party decision. Um, the ESL teachers, you know, the the they were making decisions in the summer. They weren't, which kind of like going back to that collaboration really kind of stalls collaboration, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're off contract and yet you need to be collaborating with, you know, members of the individualized uh, education program teams, the IEP teams. And so I think one recommendation that I've really appreciated, um, I think it came out of Karen Thompson's article and Jimmy Burrow's article um, that they, they had a study on, um, in part on reclassification of L's with disabilities. And they talk about the importance of trying to uh, take advantage of times where uh, those groups of educators are already together. So if you have an IEP meeting, maybe that's a good time to talk about exiting, right? Mm-hmm. Even though it might not line up with the end of the school year when you have the test results, but look at language data then, look at the previous year's score on whatever assessment they may use, WIDA or whatever, and start having those discussions so that, you know, when that, when the scores come back in and you have a bigger picture of what the student, how the student performed, you can make those decisions because you've already had those conversations. That's one of the recommendations that I really like is trying to sync reclassification discussions amongst teams of individuals with those IEP meetings that are already happening when all those stakeholders, importantly, the parents are there. Um, I think that's so that's so important. That's probably our best shot at ex- mm-hmm. um, improving collaboration around exiting. 
Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a really good point not to get too far in the weeds with elevation <laughs> and to like promote our products. That's not what this podcast is about. And I rarely bring it up as listeners know. But I have seen a lot of you talk about the IEP meetings, which is a great opportunity, um, obviously put forth by the Fed side. And then there's a lot of different states and different districts who have policies for the meetings that they need to have for not just exit meetings, by the way, yeah. but all kinds of meetings that they need to have um, with their ELs. Sometimes those are uh, just the school doing it. Sometimes it's policy. And we have a, a tool called meetings, right, where you yeah. can kind of document all of that information. And I bring it up not again to promote the product, but to give mm -hmm. you some examples that I've seen. And I wish I could call out the actual districts that in schools are doing because <laughs> they're doing such a great job. But they're documenting all of that information and having it all in one place so that when it comes to making those big decisions, they have input from a variety of different stakeholders, right? So it's that collaboration piece yeah. that you're talking about. But what you bring up is really important because it's it's almost like uh it's almost like formative, right? Over time you have all this information and then at the end yeah. you can kind of go back and look at that decision. So not only a matter of bringing the right people to the table and having those conversations but documenting it and making sure it's there in a place where everyone um can access it. Yeah, I, I think so. And because sometimes I feel um, the schools I work with, they feel like they have to wait till they get that score in to have some of these discussions. And I don't think that's the case. I think some of these discussions can happen along the way. You have other types of data. You know, ideally, I'd love to see other types of data being used to about the student's language abilities other than that one test score. Um, and what what I like also about what what you just mentioned is these districts that are involving parents and even students more in exiting decisions and, and, and feedback. I love that. Um, there's been a lot of recommendations coming out of research that we need to um, involve English learners themselves more in their own trajectory. And mm -hmm. the classification is certainly part of that. Um, uh, Monica Brooks, uh, a researcher who focuses a lot on long-term L's, has really advocated for bringing those students in to the discussion um, to understand more about what, what they want um, in terms of exiting and services. Obviously, that's one piece of the puzzle, but really promoting their own empowerment and involvement, mm -hmm. I think is really important. So the school, the fact that you're, you're seeing um, schools do that, I, I think is really encouraging. I, I love that. I love to see more of that. Yeah, the really successful ones. And you see that kind mm -hmm. of collaboration in a variety of different ways. I mean, it's a simple, it could be as simple as, you know, uh, you know, the math department collaborating with the EL yeah. department, right? It, it can be it, yeah. it's at any scale and at any level, the more collaboration we have, the more folks understand. And I love what you brought up about involving students. And again, in order to do that, you got to set goals and know where they're going to go. But it's also mm -hmm. worth it um, in the end. It saves time in the end and it it, it leads to better outcomes. Um, and of course, the information that I'm giving is largely anecdotal. You have the research behind a lot of that. So, you know, but um, there there is an increased, you know, related to this, there's an increased movement towards these individualized language plans. Mm -hmm. You know, many states are implementing them, but even in states that aren't, there's uh, districts that are like, we want to do this. We want to develop more, you know, specific plans for students and have goals for their language proficiency and bring people together around that. And I'm really encouraged about the use of those documents to, to improve collaboration, to kind of open communication up amongst, you know, speech pathologists, special educators, mm -hmm. everyone um, can be part of that kind of language proficiency discussion. 
Yeah, I mean, it shows just like the, I could look at data from kind of like the kind of content that we put out. And it's always conversations like these that we're having, whether it's with, you know, about the collaboration between um, Yale departments and SPED departments or collaboration between Yale and math or collaboration between <laughs> any people are really interested in that. Like they're really interested, yeah. but the time and the processes to put in place and the structure that you have um, can get in the way of, 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 uh, of best intentions. But it's always nice to put it out there and give some examples. Um. So we have kind of, I think we've established that this is not really um, a black and white issue. Um, and yet for in many places, it kind of still the question that they're asking, and it's one that you've kind of pushed against is, is it language or is it disability? Um, it's, it's something which you have called the the language or disability filter. And what's interesting about that is that I feel like in some places that's like a win that that's already happening but there's a lot of danger or it's a perceived one it's not a win but it's perceived as one what are the dangers of employing this filter too widely and how can we kind of take a more nuanced approach to it that's more effective yeah so um i think that question isn't language or disability i hear it all the time Mm -hmm. i could probably I had like a quarter for every time I heard it, I could retire. Um, it's just the question that um, really punctuates so much of our work with English learners with disabilities. And, you know, IDA really requires us to ask that question. So we're not wrongfully identifying uh, an English learner um, as having a disability. So that question is important. One of the concerns I have is that I think the question has become so large in our practice that we're losing sight of other questions. And Mm -hmm. I want to give an example, maybe to help kind of bring it to life. In the study I did that we talked about earlier, there was a student and I'm going to call him Demetrius. And he um, had been an English learner um, in ELD services for at that point, um, eight years. Okay. And he had, he was an English learner with um, learning disabilities and reading. And when they were trying to make an exit decision about him, they, the, the teachers and the ESL department was like, well, what, why does his score, why does his score been like flat since third grade? You know, he's, he's not making gains in the language. And they really were trying to wrestle with, is it his reading disability or is it just kind of the natural timeline of learning another language? What was really you know, interesting to me is that this student, despite getting straight A's being on honor roll was in this low track classes in in middle school, he was in the lowest track for every single class. Mm. So like kind of the, as and considered more of a low performer. And that environment was not really a language rich environment. Um, There was a lot of a lot of behavior management that kind of took over instructional time. And for me, it was really clear that that learning environment was suboptimal for this particular student. He was super motivated, um, super smart, um, high, you know, high achieving in terms of his academic grades. He wasn't scoring where they wanted him to in the standardized assessments, but in the other kind of measures of success, he was doing really well. And for me, the question is, well, is this learning environment supporting his language development? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the example I want to give to highlight 
that I think whenever we ask language or disability, we always need to ask questions about what's going on in the learning environment. And one thing I really like is that, you know, a multi-tiered system of support and the way that whole, uh, that whole system works is that we look at student data, we make changes to how we're supporting the student, we see if that helps. But part of what I really love about MTSS is that you are looking at kind of ecological data. You're looking at classroom data. You're looking to see what the learning environment is like because that's so important for how students perform. And so I think for me, it's not that the question is bad. It's that when it becomes the only question we're asking mm -hmm. and we're not taking a, a hard look at their learning opportunities, I think that's when the question kind of goes off the rails. Yeah, you know, we can get into our silos and we can kind of not, I guess, see the forest for the trees. I don't think I've ever used that expression, but there, there you go. <laughs> Definitely heard it before. But I mean, it's you, you start to lose track of, of what seems obvious. And that is that if a student is not in a language rich environment and they need to thrive in that, so they're not going to thrive, right? They're, they're, they're not going to. Um, MTSS is a great example, like kind of a wider example of a system that's in place that allows um, us to do this, to take a more kind of a wider lens view. So that's one. What about, I want to talk, I want to start talking about like some more solutions here. So how, aside from MTSS, or maybe even getting into that a little bit more, how do we widen that lens to make room for all those kind of gray areas, um, that, that would kind of help better serve our students? I mean, it's easy to see when you walk into a classroom where a lot of the attention is being put on sort of discipline issues or, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, and, and the content and the language isn't being, being, um, addressed as, as well as it could be, but how do we solve for that? Like how, what, what are some steps that you've seen happen that kind of help create systems that allow students to better, uh, perform? I think, um, I, I read in, um, Janet, the late Janet Klingner's work, um, you know, she was really a pioneer in this area, um, on English learners with disabilities. And I read somewhere that she argued that we should, we should assume it's that it's something in the environment first, um, which I think is kind of a, mm -hmm. a, 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 it's more of a philosophy of like how to approach, um, student performance and understanding student performance. And I really appreciate that, but beyond, um, that kind of general philosophy, I, I really would like to see us move towards more um, a multiplicity of data and more variable data. There's so much riding on these test scores and yeah, yeah. Um, there's really important qualitative data that we need to collect from parents um, or we need to do observations of classes. I think for, you know, those who might be listening, who head up English learner, multilingual departments, um, multilingual learner departments, I would really encourage the use of equity audits, if you're familiar with those, to examine what access um, English learners with disabilities have to both sets of services, which is a, such an important issue. And so many of our kids, especially when they have what's perceived as a more severe disability, don't have access to language support in the way that they need. So equity audits, you know, from a more of an administrative perspective can allow English learner and special ed departments in schools to see, are there systemic issues that are blocking mm -hmm. children from like, the, like Demetrius, 
if you looked at the school records, you could really see that all those kids were really clustered in the bottom track. And, you know, despite having all kinds of academic grades and being all different kind of profiles of students in terms of their motivation and their, their goals for their life. And so that kind of tells us again, when we have a disproportionate uh, disproportionate representation going on, something's not working. So I think that equity audits as a tool can really help us kind of look at the system, make sure that we're, we're fixing some of those access issues. Um, and then I think that allows us to move on to instruction, which I can, I can speak more about, like more of the instructional piece too. Yeah. And I want to get back into that, like that whole sort of separation that is well-intentioned, but doesn't really work very well. But I, w- I want to, um, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm providing some kind of solution or just kind of an anecdotal experience that I've had on my own. And we've actually talked about this in the podcast before. One of the most valuable uh professional learning opportunities I had as a high school, I taught high school for 17 years. And one of the mm-hmm. best experiences I had was shadowing a student for a day oh, yeah, mm-hmm. and walking around with them and sitting with them and basically doing everything that they did over the course of the day. I never had the opportunity to shadow a student who the, the group that we're sort of talking about, mm-hmm. but what an incredible experience and probably eye-opening experience for particularly somebody who's making decisions, somebody heads up a department or even at uh, anyone really mm-hmm. in a school. Um, and it's uh, Ivania Soto. I just remember her name, who's done some work on that. She was interviewed uh, mm-hmm. with us and she has a whole, what I did was just basically the school kind of designed it and we walked around and then we reflected. It was pretty, wasn't really super formal, but she has a whole framework mm-hmm. in place. Um, and I yeah. feel like there's a good fit here with at least building empathy and understanding of what yeah. sort of these you know students are, are, are going through and what it is that they need. So for what it's worth, yeah. I'll throw that out. No, and I I, I like that you're suggesting that. And that's it, the study, you know, the child that I mentioned earlier, that was really what the study was in part about was shadowing the students. I was kind of like their little buddy and going to their classes with them. And you you can see the same group of students um, really respond very differently to different types of teachers, depending on mm-hmm. um, the instructional approach, depending on the kind of the caring environment for the student. But, you know, I know... I'll, Quite a few administrators and teachers don't have the ability to to shadow. So I recommend, you know, partnering with, you know, partnering with researchers to help do that. I mean, yeah. you don't, you can't do that, but researchers love to do this type of thing. And it would be part of like an equity initiative that could give insight. Um, you know, I love when schools want to look at equity issues relating to this population and, and want to partner because it allows um, me to understand more about what's going on with this with the students. It allows them to get that lens on the student experience, and then I think it makes the research all the better. Yeah, but th- thank you for bringing that up because it's like mm-hmm. been something that I've always harped on. We, I probably mentioned in our last conversation. I don't remember, but this gap between research and practice has to be we we have to we have to bring it in because there's so much value that both can bring to one another. And I feel like in many in too many cases they exist in these silos um, yeah. and you just said it. I mean, I want to help, you know, I want to be there. I want to be a part of it. Let me do that work. Um, and schools are saying, who's going to do this work? So it's, it's, uh, it's a really interesting, I think, uh, opportunity for, to increase collaboration and, and, and benefit mm-hmm. students in the end. Yeah. Sure. Um, so we, we got to this a little bit, but I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about it as we kind of close out here, this, this mm-hmm. idea of, um, of separation, right? We're mm-hmm. separating students 
with the best of intentions so that we can give them more attention and focus on their needs. But you argue, as you said, that does not allow for a language-rich environment. You got into that a little bit. So mm-hmm. again, thinking about the solutions piece, what have you seen or what can we do to ensure that students get the services they need while also being exposed to the language content and importantly now more than ever, maybe the social emotional opportunities they need? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I the idea that integration and separation is like a, I think it's a primary dilemma that both um, ESL and even bilingual education as well as special education grapple with, right? Yeah, something they all have in common for sure. We all have this in common. We're all struggling with it. Um, You know, we, we integrate and sometimes by integrating students, we lose quality of services. We lose access to services um, but then if we separate, they're getting, you know, higher dosage, so to speak of mm-hmm. services, but then without access to peers, without access to, you know, grade level content, um, and sometimes without access to extra cur- like electives and extracurriculars in the secondary level. So you're like, so, tre- you're like treating the, if I'm hit, this is interesting. You're like tr- in a situation like that, you're treating the symptom, right? You're kind of masking it and putting mm-hmm. it aside for a little while, but you're really not curing the problem, right? Is that a good yeah. analogy? I think so. I mean, I think it's um, both desires, like the integration and separation in in this context, you know, again, go back to everyone wants to do what's best for the students. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to promote equity. They want the students to have the best um, education they have, but how do we get there? I think, you know, I have seen some really great efforts to help general education teachers understand what it means to create a language rich environment and to promote linguistic interaction among students. Um, you know, this idea of sometimes our teachers think we have to simplify, simplify. And then by doing that, they're not actually exposed to language the way it's really used in schools. Um, and so I love the the work that a number of scholars, you know, in, in our field have put out on amplification. How do we make language more rich? How do we make it more abundant without watering down? And I think some um, professional learning that really helps um, general education teachers see that it's um, supporting English learners is is more than, um, you know, using visuals and, and teaching vocabulary. Like, I think that getting beyond some of those kind of misconceptions about what English learner instruction is, I think, um, is really promising because we can have really wonderfully rich um, language interactions and and explicit language instruction in general education classrooms that benefits everyone. So exactly. for me, it's not an add-on. Like we're not asking you to, to do more um, when you're already doing so much um, because this, you know, doing these types of instructional um, moves opens up opportunities for everyone. Everyone can benefit from explicit you know, language instruction, everyone can benefit from collaborative learning opportunities. So I think for me, that's where I, I would like to see um, us move towards is, you know, we don't want these self-contained classrooms, um, but we need to give our, our general education teachers more of the tools they need to create that um, those opportunities. I've seen some districts do like a train the trainer model mm-hmm. where, you know, their ESL teachers under how participate in training on how to support their colleagues um, in creating these types of environments for students. And, and that seems to be um, 
you know, and kind of watching those unfold. I do see that there's a little more buy-in from, from colleagues because they're, they're learning from people that they trust and they know, right. um, in these professional learning opportunities. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned professional learning. And I'm also glad you mentioned having it geared toward content teachers who may not have the training or the time or the capacity or the expertise to do the kind of work, or they may not think that they do. And they may think that it's too heavy of a lift. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is as we've kind of built out, um, you know, we had a tool called strategy, instructional strategies, which was geared toward um, content teachers uh, to work with the the multilingual learners they had in their in their classes, and it was it was basically you know a bank of strategies and tools they could use tied with the data. And what we found is that it was it was fairly successful, but what was missing was the the PD behind it, right? The the actual mm-hmm. knowledge that they needed to actually employ these successfully. And we've just rolled out these professional learning modules, and this kind of train the trainer approach we've seen be actually successful because now you have. Uh, somebody who's an expert in the field as the multilingual mm-hmm. learner, you know, administrator at the district or teacher that now has research-backed PD modules that are that are flexible, that are coming from them, and and it's been interesting to see and successful, and hopefully will contribute to what it is that you're talking about, which is kind of amplifying um, the the skills and the expertise um, mm-hmm. uh, of content teachers around. So. Mm-hmm. More on that later, but fingers crossed that yeah. there's some difference happening there. So, and what I what I like about those kinds of trainings is be, um, is that those who are leading it are deeply familiar with the context and the constraints that everyone's working with. So they're not prescribing a one size fits all because they know that okay, some of these some of these approaches may not work um, in certain contexts. So I I like that um, when you have a colleague leading this, they they already know what you're dealing with, mm-hmm. um, there, you know, the circumstances and they can help, you know, pivot the, the, the support in that direction. And they've been trying to do it for so long, but they just don't have the, the, the thing built that they can do it with. They're creating their own stuff. It's like a teacher building their own curriculum because they don't like what yeah. they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, more on that later, we'll see how it all mm-hmm. pans out, but I'm really hopeful about it. I've always been a bit of a PD nerd as I've experienced a lot of Really bad PD, but also some really good PD in my experience. And so I think it can it's, be good. Yeah, it can, can be. be good. It should mm-hmm. be. And it can be. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So as we wrap up, Sarah, I, I asked this question of you last time. Um, I asked if there was a book or, or a resource that's influenced you either personally or professionally. And I'd like to kind of ask you that again. What what have you been reading? Is there something that kind of stands out that you'd like to share with people? And again, this can be what you were reading when you had a little downtime, um, perhaps over the summer, or it can be something kind of really, you know, based on what you um, uh, have been have been researching. Um, you know, as a confession, I I read so much for work that you know downtime is not usually dedicated towards reading. So my reading is really you know work oriented. But in thinking about this question, there's a book that. I find myself returning to time after time. And that's why I was thinking I, I would like to recommend this book. Um, if you've heard of it, it's called Dual Language Development and Disorders, mm-hmm. um, a handbook on bilingualism and second language learning. And it's by um, Parity and colleagues. And I think it's, you know, it's had a number of editions, but why I like it is, as you heard in the title, it's dealing with the intersection of bilingualism and, and disability it presents research in a way that's not overly technical or complicated. So, you know, I don't find it to be a difficult read, but what I really appreciate about it is that it presents um, in part evidence 
that helps us debunk some of these myths that exist about English learners with disabilities, like the idea that bilingualism could be too taxing for a child with especially certain types of um, cognitive disabilities. Mm-hmm. And they they take the scientific evidence and they address that head on to really promote the bilingual multilingual development of children with disabilities. And that's, I think, where my heart goes, because I want these students to um, be able to use the languages that they have in their life to the fullest capacity and to have connections to family, to their broader community, to have connections um, to school. And so I, I really love that they are advocating for um embracing and supporting multilingualism for students with disabilities. And that's, um, so I find myself coming back to that book a lot because of, um, because of the evidence presented in it, because of the kind of the hope and the promise that we have that these, um, these students are certainly bilingual and, and can have really wonderful, um, you know, wonderful interactions in their languages and, and have deep connections to their communities, um, and that we shouldn't close out those opportunities because we're worried that's going to be too hard for them. So I think I like that. I like that book a lot. Um, In terms of other resources, um, the National Center for Systemic Improvement for throughout this past year has had, um, they called a thought leader series on the intersection of um, language, culture, and disability. And the series, it's it's a it's a series of has been a series of webinars and podcasts and other resources aimed at both um, you know, school leaders supporting English learners with disabilities, but also like state, you know, state um, leaders who are kind of developing policies and supporting schools. And so what I have liked about those resources is that um, I have found that they address, you know, really critical topics like data, like how do we use data? How do yeah. we collect data that can, um, re- we can make sound evidence-based decisions about this group of students? How can we um, promote systems in our schools that can talk about collaboration, can really collaborate and come together? How can we break down some of those barriers? So what I have liked about that series um and I have taken part in it just a little bit, um, is that it's really addressing some of the big picture issues mm-hmm. that really um, shape how, how how teachers are able to support the students. And I think it does it in a thoughtful way. So I've been enjoying those and kind of recommending those for um, people to listen to, you know, as they're going to work or, you know, as they're home doing whatever. Great. Well, you've given us two, I think, different kinds of resources, but both Mm -hmm. seem to address the issue in a way that's accessible, um, which I think is really, really important. So thanks for that. So last question, Sarah, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing? There's so much out there. It seems like you've done a lot over the last uh, few years. Um, Well, I'm not a big social media gal. So the best, um, the best way is through my, like my faculty website that's pretty up to date and it has my list uh, like new publications, which I'm always happy to provide to teachers. I know it's sometimes hard to get, there's like firewalls and you can't get access to articles. So I have like on the website, you could always request one of my articles and I I do send them, you know, over to you. And um, it has a list of, you know, like media engagements like this that I participate in as well as talks that I, that I have like on the horizon. So that's pretty much the best place to go. Um, to see what 
um, types of research I'm doing and what types of, you know, professional development I may be doing as well. So, um, that's a go-to. And then I'm, I'm very, um, you know, very responsive on email. So I really encourage anyone who wants to, you know, talk about issues in their school, um, or, you know, want to be pointed in the direction of resources. I'm always happy to do that. Great. I appreciate you saying two things. One, um, that you will share those publications because it's always like this maze of trying to find them and you can read the abstract and then you get excited, but you can't find it. So really appreciate that. And I will confirm for everybody that you did send them to me. So that actually will happen. And I will also confirm to folks that you are very responsive on on email. I, I found you maybe four years ago thinking about this whole topic and we got in touch then. And every time I've been in touch, you've been responsive. So really, really yeah. appreciate that. We will um, provide the link to your faculty website sure, so folks yeah. can go there. Um, and with that, uh, sorry, it's been a pleasure reconnecting yeah, with you. you. Um, yeah. We're recording this the day before Thanksgiving or whatever holiday yeah. folks are celebrating here. So uh, I wish you and your family, hopefully a nice oh, uh, downtime and um, and everybody else. I hope you enjoyed it because this will be out after that happens. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Great to see you. You as well. Take care. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.